Maybe it's going to be great. Let's be positive. It's going to be great. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. The Republican National Convention starts today. It'll be interesting to see if it's anywhere near as weird as the Democratic Convention was last week. How weird was it? Well, with no live audience in a big hall because of COVID, the convention played even more like a scripted TV show than these events had already become. And with no big live event to go to, Connecticut's Democratic delegates didn't gather with their colleagues from around the country. Instead, they socially distanced in an otherwise empty Dunkin' Donuts Park in Hartford. One of the former big league politicians attending this event was Senator Chris Dodd, fending off reports that while a member of Joe Biden's vice president search committee, he had not exactly been supportive of the eventual choice, Kamala Harris. This audio is from WNPR. When I was in the Motion Picture Association, Ed, we did a fundraiser for Bo Biden in California, and Kamala and I co-hosted the event for him. So I've known her a long time, and like her, she's a good person, and uh, she was a good choice. Strange days indeed. This episode, we'll talk about the politics of the moment, recap the Democratic convention, preview the Republican one, also talk about some drama in the state GOP that's putting pressure on party chairman J.R. Romano, and we'll talk about one of my favorite subjects, why can't Connecticut do early voting and mail-in voting like so many other states? I talked about all this last week with the Mirror's Capitol Bureau chief and brand new grandpa, Mark Pazniokas, CT News junkie contributor Susan Bigelow, and Southern Connecticut State University political science professor and Republican Party insider Jonathan Wharton. It was the first edition of Steady Habits Live, a Zoom event with a crowd of Connecticut Mirror members. Would you like to become a member so you can take part? Well, go to ctmirror.org and click Donate. You can find out more there. I started our program by asking Susan, who likes watching conventions, Jonathan, who thinks they're kind of dumb, and Paz, who's covered a bunch of them, what they made of this very unusual Democratic convention. It really doesn't strike me as watching a convention. Uh, it's, it's something different. And actually, I think that's what they should do. And that's what the Republicans should do. You shouldn't try to replicate the experience of being in a crowded hall uh, at a convention over four days or so. You know, I've been to seven or eight of, I think, eight of them. And I, I love, you know, I love going to them. Um, I really love it when they end because you're always exhausted and ready to go. But this is not it. Uh, you know, f- from a reporter's point of view, the, it, the nice thing about being at a convention, aside from the hoopla and everything, is that it's like the world's largest uh, focus group. That over the course of uh, almost a week, you get to spend time with party activists and um, they come from different, you know, walks of life. They have different views politically and every convention I've, I've been to, I've come back with a really good sense of, I think, of divisions in, in the various parties and, you know, what's the excitement level coming up uh, as well as, just generally the, the divisions in the parties, the, the diversity. Um, you know, if you go to a national convention to cover the Connecticut delegation, I mean, a, a Republican national convention, uh, it's, it's quite the thing. From, a, from the Connecticut perspective, you may view the Republicans as, you know, right of center, some real conservative. 
And then you get to a national convention and these people are seen as crazy liberals, you know. One of the things that you actually get out of a, a convention, say a Democratic convention this week, is a chance to see what some of the differences are. And for the last several years, we've been talking about a Democratic Party that has some really big differences. And it would be kind of interesting to see a convention in which there was that tension played out. But Susan, we don't see any of that because of the way it's being presented. No, and it feels actually like uh, a week-long infomercial instead of, it's not really like a live event where things are happening and, and there's people that can bounce off each other. It's, it's, all, it's very sterile in some ways. Uh, now, some things that they've done, I think, have been really good. I actually rather liked their roll call that they did. With, they went to every single state. That was actually really good, I thought. And Rhode Island had the calamari. They had the guy with calamari standing right there. Nice job, Rhode Island. I'm sure everyone's probably heard about the calamari thing, and I want to get uh, the professor in on this really quickly. I just want to play some of this for you here. It's just, it's just 30 seconds. Th this was the, the nominating speech from Rhode Island. It was happening on a beach with a plate of calamari next to it. This is, this is kind of amazing. Here, here we go. Let's see if we can hear this. Rhode Island, the ocean state, where our restaurant and fishing industry have been decimated by this pandemic, are lucky to have a governor, Gina Raimondo, whose program lets our fishermen sell their catches directly to the public, and our state appetizer, calamari, is available in all 50 states. The calamari comeback state of Rhode Island casts one vote for Bernie Sanders and 34 votes for the next president, Joe Biden. I, I, wow. have, I have to say, Professor, when I saw that, I thought to myself, it's such a great way, if you've got 30 seconds, right, in your Rhode Island, you're the smallest state, you've got to make your mark somehow, and they actually used it as an ad for calamari. Isn't that great? And the restaurant industry, which, of course, has been affected and slammed significantly in, in our region. Um, so it was very impressive that, that at least, you know, they made that pitch. It was certainly a notable one. And uh, getting back to even your earlier tweet, what the heck is Connecticut going to have as a comeback? <laughs> well, well, that's uh, the thing. Yeah, well, what, what, what do you think? I mean, what, what should we have done? Oh, a hot lobster roll. No question. Uh, do it New England style. It would have been great to have it featured uh, that way, uh, just as a reminder in terms of what we have here. Mm. Well, I would have had some delicious New Haven pizza. <laughs> from Sally's. Something from uh, Pepe's, maybe the white clam pie, something like that. Something that's really, really good that Connecticut is always tops at. That'd be great. The last time, I, oh God, I can't remember now, if it was a Democratic or Republican one, uh, they, they skipped pizza claims because that could be very contentious. And they, they emphasized the invention of the cheeseburger in New Haven. I, I suppose you could go with that too. I, so, so, Professor, do you think that this sort of convention actually leads us into the future of political conventions, or do we start to, to see the reality that maybe these things are kind of dumb in the first place and don't really need to happen at all in the way that they have for so many years? That's a good summary of my tweet from uh, yesterday. <laughs> Thanks, John. You make me sound like a great curmudgeon with that. Look, I, <laughs> look we have to realize these are pep rallies. Uh, you're not going to get anything significant out of it. It's for the party diehards. And I think both parties need to recognize that the majority of Americans, and this is true in Connecticut, are unaffiliated voters. The party leaners, they're not attached or affiliated with any political party. 
So what are you doing by supposedly expanding your tent out to do this? It's just a hurrah party, as opposed to something more substantive and something more policy driven. Also, one thing, John, I do want to add is that we're one of the few states in Connecticut that still do our conventions for the state, you know, positions too. Like what, out of one, at one out of like 10 to still remain to do it that way? I mean, we're a throwback. I get it with Atlanta City Habits. Don't beat up on this nutmegger for that. I respect tradition. But I guess the big thing is, especially as a former delegate for a couple of these conventions at the state level, is there a big question as to whether we do away with it, even at the state level? Do we amend it? Do we make it a hybrid? Do we really have to do it over a series of days? Can't we knock this out over one, one or two days? And what do we do to draw in more of these leaners on affiliated voters with these conventions? Because you generally don't. You turn them off, quite frankly. Moving to, to the Republican convention very quickly, Jonathan, though, what will this convention look like? Well, let me say this. I think you know I differentiate what goes on between the RNC and certainly what goes on here in Connecticut. So I can't speak for everybody who's a Republican in Connecticut in that respect, because some people would understand it. Some people would hate me for it. But I, I will say that what I would expect out of this potential convention would be uh, probably more or less a hybrid finding aspects of what the Democrats have done, taken what could be emphasized, the concerns that surround um, uh, the future of America, uh, in that what can be emphasized of a Trump presidency for another term? In other words, what is it to mean to be an American now in this era? And so uh, that's going to be one that I'm sure will be highlighted over and over again, because that's been part of his branding for, for a long time. So it'll be a reminder, really, of essentially four years ago. I expect to see something that's going to be a little less polished than the uh, Democratic Convention, just because they have had a lot less time. Um, they weren't even really sure what they were going to do for a convention uh, until not, not too long ago. There was still up in the air the idea of Trump accepting uh, the nation in front of a crowd somewhere, like in Jacksonville. Um, so I feel like, and the Democrats have been getting ready for their convention for months. Uh, they've been planning out what they're going to do, what it's going to look like. So it's going to be interesting to see what the Republicans actually do. Um, it's not going to be, I don't think, as slick. Uh, it's not going to be as, as well produced, perhaps. We'll see. I mean, maybe it will be. Um, but I think that there's also just going to be, there's also going to be a lot more kind of interesting, maybe different live moments, that, that sort of thing. Uh, I do suspect that there's going to be a lot of moments that get people on Twitter and YouTube all riled up. Uh, I think that's another part of what they're trying to do. They have some very um, incendiary speakers, people who have been cultural flashpoints. And that seems to be, that's another part of the Trump brand is to bring on people like that, like the people who were uh, waving guns uh, in St. Louis at the Black Lives Matter protesters. They're going to speak. I don't know what they're going to say. I'm a little afraid of what they're going to say. Um, but that's, that I think is, is getting at the brand that at least Trump wants to have for this, this convention. So instead of the Democratic convention, which is sort of like a very nice, Joe Biden is a good guy, uh, America is still a good place. Then we get to the, the Republican convention, which is gonna be, I think, a little darker. It's fair to say that Donald Trump is unlike any president we've ever had. So it's, it's hard to draw any real parallels here, but you would normally try to run on the record I'm not necessarily sure that that's what's going to happen. We're, we're not going to hear speeches about, I don't think, about the, the positive state of the economy, because right now 
it's not in good shape. What are we going to hear? Well, I think we're going to hear some themes that uh, we saw in Cleveland. Um, you know, the, the party and the president portrayed America as a very scary place four years ago. Uh, they ignored uh, the criminal uh, trends and, and made America's cities to be uh, what they were perhaps in the mid-70s, you know, in the days of the Bronx's burning and whatnot. Um, you know, I think based on what we know about the speakers coming up, they're going to hit some of those tones. Um, it's going to be police accountability. It's going to be Blue Lives Matter versus uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, so I, I don't think there's any doubt that you're going to see a divisive message. The president's strategy always has been to maintain a base and hope that base is just enough to get him over the top. It, the other question will be, how will the president himself perform? I mean, that's one thing I'll be looking for is, how does the president himself come to terms with the fact that uh, he's not gonna be working with an audience? I wanna actually turn to the, the Republican party at the state level and the chaos, I think, is a, is a good term for what's happening with the, the Connecticut GOP. We've been saying for years the Republicans can't seem to put up reasonable candidates for congressional races. But I, I kind of feel like this past week there was a, a rock bottom that was hit in some way. Paz, most people who are watching and listening have probably read your reporting about the saga of Justin Anderson, who's now the nominee to take on Joe Courtney in the 2nd District. Uh, you quoted him in your, your story as saying, this is insane, after he won by 81 votes over Thomas Gilmer, the party-endorsed candidate. And he could be referring to so much there, actually, with just that, that simple three-word three quote. I'm wondering if you could, for people who don't know the saga up to date, could you quickly, Paz, just get us up to speed on what exactly has happened here? Sure. And I'm guessing anybody who's tuned into this probably knows, but yes, let's do that. Uh, so Justin Anderson is a retired correction officer, uh, came in his possession a video that he purported uh, to show Tom Gilmer, who was the party endorsed candidate in the second district, showing him uh, assaulting uh, a woman who was his girlfriend at the time. This was in 2017. Um, this, uh, Splash back on both of them, on Mr. Gilmer for obvious reasons. Uh, he eventually was uh, arrested uh, the day before uh, the primary, and he announced he would be withdrawing whatever happened on Tuesday. But it also splashed back on Mr. Anderson because he did not go public with any accusations, and he said he was in a awkward spot that the woman who gave him the video uh, was reluctant to step forward as well. So he pressed the state party leaders, J.R. Romano, the chair, uh, among others, to uh, induce Mr. Gilmer to step down. And that gets very dicey. You know, there's an element of coercion here that feels a little bit like blackmailing, you know, when it's not out in the open. So it became, it, it became this very awkward thing, particularly when it looked like Mr. Gilmer was going to hang on and win the primary. And if he had withdrawn, then the state central committee, which the professor used to be a member of, would have been in the position of having to decide, do you give the nomination to the runner-up, who had really ticked off a number of people in that district over his handling it? So it just became a, a mess in that it, it's now reflected on the party. 
Um, domestic violence in any time is and should be a serious issue, but more so right now after the Me Too movement. Um, there's a huge gender gap uh, that the president is laboring to close. So this all kind of turned what should have been a footnote on primary night, because let's be honest, until Joe Courtney retires, this is probably not going to be a competitive seat. You know, the Republicans there have generally been doing about 35 percent uh, in the general elections against Joe, even though this was a Republican seat until Courtney won in 2006. It's, it's clear that in the second district, th there is a chance for Republicans to be competitive if indeed you put up competitive candidates. And so maybe, uh, Jonathan Warren, let, let's talk about that point first, because we want to talk, I think, a little bit about the, the party leadership and Jay Romano and what he knew and what others knew and what they should have done about it. But you seem to have an inability to run candidates that can be competitive, even in places where maybe if you put up a decent candidate, you could be competitive. Why is this such a difficult thing for Republicans in the state? Well, let me counter that, John. A part of it is it requires an awful lot of fundraising to run for Congress. I think we forget it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And most of these candidates are, if they're able to even use part of their money or loan their money, which we saw obviously with both candidates in that district, tens of thousands of dollars instead. Fundraising is a very tricky area and particularly for Congress. I'm not giving an excuse, but it's a reality. So you put in the fact that Few people want to run for office. Few people want to go up against an incumbent who's been in Congress for years and years and years, which is mostly Connecticut delegation. I mean, let's just face it, all right? And, and nationally, we already know 90% of incumbents get reelected unless a scandal happens or they die. And in Connecticut, it's no different. Then you throw in the fact how much money is required to run for Congress, which is in the millions of dollars. So how do you deal with that? With, in these instances, some of these instances, you're dealing with candidates who've never run for office before. So few people want to step up to the plate. Fewer people have the money, the resources, but really we need to spend more time on the fundraising prowess that's required to run for office in general. But for Congress, it's almost impossible. And I will tell you as somebody who, yes, as Pat said, served on the state central committee, uh, who stepped down only a couple months ago. Uh, and I was not aware of any of these allegations, quite frankly. Um, you know, I wasn't even aware that even JR was aware of these instances. Um, you know, a lot of this was shocking to somebody like me. And I will admit that that morning, I, I got slammed with text messages and, and phone calls early, early in the morning. And I think you guys know, I, I'm not an early bird. So for me to be slammed with all this, you know, on a Tuesday morning at primary, it's like, what is going on? And so there were a lot of things that took place, obviously, in headquarters that they had to deal with. That a lot of this came out really on Monday going into Tuesday. And it was an unfortunate turn of events. But in terms of finding recruiting candidates, it's the fundraising aspect that is the biggest hurdle. And this is all pre-Trump. Yeah. So you can throw in all the Trump fact you want, but this is really on top of everything else. Really much deeper than that. You know, you, you, on the Democratic side, you have people who will give up a safe Democratic legislative seat and go for it. And the, Democrat, and the Republicans won't. That's, a, that's like a whole nother show because... Republicans, maybe not this cycle, but generally are competitive in Connecticut. You know, the races for governor are 50-50 all the time. But for Congress, I think it's just gone for a generation because of the national 
Republican brand. It does not play here. And there's no reason to, and in, 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 no, there's nothing that entices young, um, promising Republican state legislators to give up the General Assembly and go to Washington. Uh, so, so Susan, quickly, your thoughts on this on this entire debacle? Because I think we want to talk about what it means for the for the Republican Party. But if you know that there's domestic violence happening, for instance, you probably need to do something about it. You 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 don't need to to sit on that information and hope that it just goes away over time. Mm-hmm. It's it's a really troubling series of allegations. I'm sure that as a woman in America, watching what's happened over the past you know couple of years to people who um, come forward with these sorts of accusations, it's not a safe thing to do. It can be very, very difficult and very hard. Doing nothing seems to be the absolute wrong play here and possibly the most damaging thing that that they could do, Um, especially because this is the sort of thing that they went after Elizabeth Esty a couple of years ago when she had a similar kind of thing in her her office where she knew about sexual harassment and abuse, but didn't do anything about it. And they slammed her, the Republican Party slammed her really hard and for not doing anything. And now they're in the exact same shoes and they've done nothing. Um, it, makes them, it makes them look like hypocrites. It makes them look like they didn't, they, they didn't step up to the plate and take on that moral challenge. It's, I think it would have been a hard thing for them to go to the police, especially if the victim didn't want that to happen, but at least trying to get that candidate out of the race uh, somebody that you don't want representing your party, that would have been something at the very, very least. It's just a matter of the fact that only a few people knew clearly on State Central. And and really, it was only gossip from what I've understood. And that's not giving an excuse. I get the reporting angle of what you're saying. And I also get the point of how this could be blackmailed. Absolutely, both sides of it. But the reality was only a few people ever knew. I will also counter that a number of prominent lawmakers have come out against what has happened and certainly now spoken against even J.R. Romano, the chairman, about how all this was handled. So you are seeing some prominent people like Themis Claritus, even Bob Stefanowski announced it, you know, a, a couple of days ago, who was a 2018 human candidate, which kind of surprised me, by the way. I didn't expect him to come out um, like that. Uh, so I think you're seeing some people taking sides. Now, one bigger question Johnny might want to go after is, what is State Central going to do about any of this and what is going to happen with J.R.? Quite frankly, the chairman's going to remain in there because this term ends in the spring. So this notion that he's going to resign or step down from this, I'm not expecting that anytime soon from happening, quite frankly. And Paz, this is something you don't expect to happen either. I will just say quickly that in your story, you know, you you have this little bit of detail that amongst the things that J.R. Romano did not do is he didn't consult a lawyer near as we can tell, which is, I would think, one of the first things you might do, you might get on speed dial and say, hey, could you advise me on this? But near as we understand, he didn't even do that. No, he didn't. And he acknowledges that. And, and that is one of the things that troubles some of the Republicans, because I think even his critics acknowledge he was in a very awkward position on this. Because remember, the man who's bringing the evidence uh, is the opponent. Um, but no, he didn't. You know, there are certainly Republican lawyers uh, who would have been willing to take that call and, and listen to Jr. say, look, I'm in a pickle here and I need some help legally and strategically. And that didn't happen. Well, even Len Fasano, who's a lawyer, we can't forget past, was the one who said, look, how else could have been handled except for the way that he was trying to deal with it? So which is why he's been supportive of, of Jr. to begin with, which. Well, Jr. could have viewed the video. He declined to do that. 
And right. Susan Hatfield, who was a state prosecutor and the vice chair of the Republican Party, could have viewed it. And then, regardless of what the victim or Justin Anderson wanted, she's a mandatory reporter, and it would have gone to the police. And so there are there are other things that could have happened. And and I say that, and I say that really being sympathetic to again, this was an incredibly awkward situation that Justin Anderson and Tom Gilmer put J.R. Romano and other leaders who were apprised of this uh, in. And let me say this past, along with you, John and, and, and Susan, I've been on a bizarre thread because I guess I'm still on State Central's emails. <laughs> and, you know, this, there's this tendency in Connecticut of Republicans fighting it out against each other. And mm -hmm. the tactic that Justin took here in this instance really plays out writ large. Um, and it really, as I think you all know, uh, upsets me um, because there's just this tendency that we might be 21% strong. <laughs> I'm going to be sarcastic on that. Uh, Republican in this state. Uh, and the Republicans are nearly, you know, the Democrats are nearly double that number. So, you know, it's this certainly a significant gap. But we have a tendency to kind of fight against each other. And um, I don't know if that's family or if it's politics or it's just nastiness. But it seems to be all the above in this instance in terms of how the candidates handled this. We're going to take a break here in our conversation with Susan Bigelow, Jonathan Wharton, and Mark Pazniokas as part of our Steady Habits Live series. And you can find out more about Steady Habits Live at ctmirror.org. You can become a member there by clicking Donate, and that way you'll have access to our future Steady Habits events. I'm excited to share some details about our next event, though, which we're calling Race, Sports, and Politics. It's with Doug Glanville, former Major League Baseball player, current ESPN analyst, and a friend of the Connecticut Mirror. Now, Doug doesn't subscribe to the idea that there's no place for politics in sports. In fact, he thinks we could all learn a thing or two from the way athletes of different races, cultures, and religions learn to work alongside one another toward a common goal. It's a conversation that's become even more pressing this year, if you want to join us, this event is free for all Connecticut Mirror members. So go ahead and circle September 1st at 8 p.m. on your calendars. Registration for this event is going to open up shortly. During our Steady Habits live conversation last week, we turned from the politics of the upcoming election to the mechanics of the election. For the first time, Connecticut's allowing expanded absentee balloting because of COVID, but it's a one-shot deal. A constitutional amendment would be required to overhaul the way we vote. Meanwhile, the problems presented by the Trump administration's tinkering with the U.S. Postal Service has election officials worried. It's something I talked with uh, Secretary of the State Denise Merrill about in our last episode. She's been saying, if you want to vote absentee, try to put your ballot in one of those boxes in front of your town hall just to be safe. I asked Susan Bigelow what she thinks will happen this November in a state where we're not used to this mail-in voting thing, and results are often pretty slow to be counted. Thankfully, we're from Connecticut, where results tend to come in really late anyway, so we're at least conditioned to wait at least a little while. But this is going to be tough. Um, having races that are out there that are not decided, having especially the presidential race where we really don't know um, what's going to happen in, in the event of a Trump loss. His White House press secretary was, was, would not commit to uh, actually having him you know, accept a loss. So there's always that that uh, awful tension there, what's gonna happen, what's gonna happen. Um, and those of us who remember uh, 2000, uh, when that race dragged on and on and on after, uh, after the election and how terrible that was to not have that certainty of here's the next person, our democracy continues in this way with this person going forward, it's, it's tough. 
um, I think we're going to have to try to be understanding and be patient. We're going to have to try to understand that this is this could take days and days. That the number of absentee ballots are going to overwhelm the system. Um, that there's going to be town clerks and trying to uh, count these votes, um, and it's just it's just going to take a really long time. So we have to try and I think be calm about this, uh, and not try to push for results to be coming out fast, 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 fast. I think that's. Now, sometimes it's against our nature because we want to know what's happening as soon as we can. Um, but in this case, I think the responsible thing to do is to say, all right, the voting has concluded. Um, we won't know the results for a couple of days. And that's, that's simply our reality. Paz, did we learn anything from the primary, which was for the first time in Connecticut conducted with a kind of absentee ballot, an expanded absentee ballot uh, system because of COVID-19? Did we learn anything about how well we might be able to do this in November? Yeah, I mean, as far as getting the results, it really, um, it, it, it didn't work that badly. But again, you, you did not have con uh, really a competitive presidential primary neither. You had a handful of legislative races and we did find out um, pretty quickly who won. And then, you know, even in the best of circumstances without absentee ballots, given how close the second uh, congressional primary was, uh, that would have taken um, the amount of time it took anyway, it was, which was a week, including a recount. Um, but here's, I think, where, I mean, I think Susan is giving everybody good advice about just being calm on election night. But I would say that we should not be calm in September. There should be a demand for the Connecticut General Assembly to get off their butts and build an infrastructure that can handle the volume of absentee ballots that are coming in. Now, Connecticut has a bifurcated system of running elections. There's a heavy reliance on 169 cities and towns. Um, you know, in the second district, you know, I was, you know, there was one precinct that was missing and a precinct in Connecticut is just a polling place and North Stonington. They just never went online and inputted the numbers because it's on the responsibility, the responsibility is on the locals to go into the state system. There is no state gathering system. It's simply a tool for them to use. So if your local registrar and town clerks don't input it, it doesn't go into the state system. And in the case of North Stonington, they didn't do it. They popped it in the mail and that was that. And it finally arrived, uh, you know, this morning, I think. Uh, so, there's that problem, but we don't have an infrastructure set up. At voting by absentee, the counting is really no different once the envelopes are opened and this stuff is vetted. It's all up front, you know, and understandably so to make to, to guard against fraud. There is a lot of work that goes into making sure that ballot that shows up is real and that it does not duplicate um, something uh, that somebody is doing at the polls. It's, with, despite all the criticism, the basics of the system are pretty reliable that way. But it, just that process of opening the envelopes and, and getting it ready to feed into the machine, that's what takes time. And so far, I don't see any sense of urgency at the General Assembly or even in the Secretary of State's office to say, we've got to ramp up for, for doing this, you know, and, you know, like in a dimension of 10 uh, to, to be ready for this. 
I believe that right now, um, I think the rule is that you cannot open the ballots until election day, like 10 o'clock a.m. on election day. Correct. They moved it up this time, but there's yeah. no reason they can't do more of it earlier. And then there's the question of personnel. And, and that's the harder thing because, you know, this is an, an enterprise in which you gear up with all the, by and large, a lot of part-time folks. The mm -hmm. pandemic clearly uh, complicates it. So, you know, I'm not suggesting it's easy. To, you know, people should not uh, mistake my comments for, for suggesting it is. But there needs, I think, to be an effort to make this election work as well as it possibly can. And Jonathan, what do you make of this? I mean, we're going to have an election unlike any other. People are worried about going to polling places. And honestly, we don't know right now what polling places will be like in November. I'm knocking on wood here, hoping that we don't have another quarantine situation in which we're all expected to stay home because there's a spike in coronavirus cases. But there very well could be. So absentee balloting or uh, mail-in voting is going to be something that an awful lot of people are going to use it doesn't seem like we have the infrastructure necessarily to do it. Maybe not the political will in Connecticut to do anything about it. Oh, and yeah, we've got this U.S. Postal Service shutdown, it seems, coming from the Trump administration that's making it harder for people to get all sorts of mail. A letter from your grandma, your, your prescription drugs, and maybe it'll be hard to get your ballot in. What do we do about this? Well, look, it kind of speaks towards what Paz was saying earlier and something I've emphasized in class over and over again. We forget in Connecticut, we love our home rule. We love our towns and our cities to make a lot of these decisions, including voting. And so <clears throat> did we see a, a, an effort, a streamlining process, a uniformity, uh, not just across municipalities, but even at the state level to step in and help function and make this operate? Quite frankly, as a former party chairman <laughs> in New Haven, I, I saw moments on election nights where the Democrats and the Republican registrar voters had to work with each other, and they generally do, to get whatever they can to get these ballots counted. It is a nightmare in general to deal with election nights for a lot of these registrar voters. And I, I feel for them because I, I, I've had to deal with it on some of these election nights up front in New Haven. And it would go on and on and on, and it never seems to end. Then you throw in election day registration, EDRs, which is always a nightmare to begin with. First off, there aren't enough consultants or moderators there to help make certain that people are registered, let alone that they have uh, an ability to vote. And they're oftentimes doing this, you know, at all times of the day and even into the night. So you throw in every scenario possible. And I'm still back, by the way, John, I don't want to forget about this, that, that one election where it was raining and the ballots got stuck and jammed. And I was dealing with that in New Haven. Again, as a party leader, I'm like, oh, my God, can this get any worse? You know, let's just let, let's just let it snow on Election Day at this point and see what happens then. Because you know one thing? This year, 2020, it's just, you know, might as well just be thrown in the trash. It's been a, a tough, tough year, and it's not seems like it's going to get any better, especially as it relates to what we're going to be faced with, uh, you know, potentially in November under a pandemic. I, I will say that, that even people who maybe disagree with you on a lot of things, Jonathan, will agree with the notion that maybe we should throw this year in the trash. I, 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 will, yeah. I will say, you know, I've been talking with, with various secretaries of state and other election officials from inside and outside this state for years about how we might redesign a system. And I, I guess I'm just wondering if there is some impetus, I don't know, Susan, to, to, to change the way we're doing this if 
because of COVID, because of the fact that states uh, around the country have shown that mail-in voting actually does work, as long as the U.S. Postal Service works, that maybe we might be able to design something in Connecticut that takes all this information and says, this is actually the way you conduct an election. This is the way that you do things. I mean, have you given some thought to this at all, Susan, about, about how we might change things, like one or two ways to make this whole election thing work better? Well, yeah. Um, and there's certainly been some legislation in the works to change a lot of the stuff that we already do um, for some time. Just, uh, I don't think it's coming up this coming year, but maybe 2022, this, there'll be a vote on a constitutional amendment to open up the voting process a little bit more. But right now, uh, absentee ballots are supposed to only go to people who have a good excuse for them. And technically what the legislature has done is allowed COVID to be a blanket excuse kind of for everybody. Um, there's no early voting. There's no sort of universal vote by mail. Some of the things I think we are learning though, putting ballot collection boxes in front of town halls, for example, I don't think that there's any reason why we couldn't have those stay uh, after this is all done. I think that we'll hopefully figure out some better ways to actually get our elections done um, by using a lot of different processes instead of just kind of going and, and voting in person. I'm hoping that's what we'll see. You said, Paz, there's not a lot of political will to do something to really ramp up for this particular election. There's probably even less political will to do the sort of things that, that we're talking about here. Wholesale changes that get Connecticut you know, up to par with some of the states that do mail-in voting or early voting for several days in advance, mailing out ballots without you having to ask like states like Vermont do. There's a lot of things that people do, and it doesn't feel to me like our state's ready to do any of that. You know, what Susan was referring to about a, a vote possibly coming up, the first thing they have to do is change the Constitution. So yep. initial mm -hmm. step, because right now it's in the Constitution. It's a limited uh, number of circumstances in which you can vote by absentee. Um, and they, the next, because there was a vote uh, by this legislature, but it fell short in the Senate of being a supermajority. Republicans voted against it. In the House, they were supportive. Um, so to put it on the ballot right away required a supermajority. So it has to be a vote of the next legislature as well. And then it would go on the ballot in 2022. But that's the first thing. And that alone doesn't change anything. That simply allows the General Assembly to consider legislation on how you would let people use absentee ballots. And I, you know, there are Republicans I talk to who, you know, perhaps not publicly, but they, they are mystified by the party's opposition to getting rid of, you know, the very limited number of excuses. Because the way it's set up right now, you know, we have, rightly so, we have uh, deified, uh, you know, healthcare workers. Well, if you are a nurse or a doctor who's pulling a double shift at Hartford Hospital on election day, and you live in Hartford, there is no legal way in a normal year, this year you can, but there is no legal way to get an absentee ballot. You, you know, the rule is, well, if you work out of town and you're gonna be out of town, you can. Nobody thinks that makes sense. You know, 30 years ago when my wife voted by absentee, uh, because, you know, actually she called it, she gave birth to a baby on election day, 30 years ago, I'm sorry, 28 years ago. And there was no legal way for her to get an absentee ballot. You know, so she, she just kind of fudged it. And, you know, nobody, nobody gets pursued for that as long as you only vote once. That's the important thing here. But it really is a silly system. 
I'll very quickly ask my uh, political science professor, Jonathan Wharton. So here's my plan. Ready? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a five-day period of early voting. Ooh, that's radical, John. Okay. It's, it's, it's Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, right? Monday, Tuesday. You, you have all those days to, to actually vote. You, you can mail in your ballot up until that point, but it's got to be actually received by the first day of that, of that early voting period. Um, well, they do that in some states. It's called early voting. John. It's it's actually called early voting. Although yeah. I, I think I, I forget, Jonathan, is does does President Trump think early voting is good or absentee voting? I can't remember. One of the two of them is great, and the other one's really terrible. I can't I don't remember. Think the president's actually against early voting, from what I remember, because Florida has it. And he's, he's <laughs> That's right. If it's in Florida, no matter what it is, it's great. Right, Florida is is great in that respect. Actually, my own parents <laughs> joke me say. Hey, Johnny, at least we have early voting. What do you guys still have in Connecticut? You know, they have never to kind of brandish that in my face. Pizza. We've got great pizza. <laughs> that is true. Well, you know one thing? I throw back my father's face uh, wrongfully that we have lobster rolls. And unfortunately, he's now allergic to lobster. So, <laughs> so the thing is, is that, look, the, the, the thing is, is, we should be more innovative. But getting that passes me point, we're not. We're very antiquated. We're stuck in our ways. Hey, to quote somebody with Atlanta study habits. And so it's our reality. Um, the saddest thing is you're dealing with the state constitution. But one thing we can't forget is you gotta get the political parties on board too. <laughs> so trying to go through both say central committees, let alone the leadership of the parties, I mean, God, that's almost impossible. They can't even agree what day of the week it is sometimes. I wanna, I wanna say the, the kid who was born 28 years ago on election day is in fact, a doctor who is routinely working 14-hour days as a first-year resident, but happily for her, she is living and working in a state in which it's not a big deal to vote by mail. And but otherwise, if you know, she she lives and works in the same city, and if that was in Connecticut, and again, absent the special rules this year, she wouldn't be able to vote. One thing that just quickly, one thing that's kind of sad is that we actually had a chance to change this. I think it was six years ago, I think it was in 2014, uh, there would have been a constitutional amendment had the voters simply approved it, which for reasons that still mystify me, they did not. So we could have had early voting, but the public simply did not get on board. The, word, the wording was kind of weird. And I, and I think it was, you know, 2014 was two lifetimes ago when it comes to political trends. I think we all- That's true. I want to thank our panelists today. Susan Bigelow from ctnewsjunkie.com. Always good to see you, Susan. Go Whalers. I love your, your shirt. Go Whalers. Go Whalers. Come back, um, come back Whalers. I, 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 want to, I want to thank Jonathan Wharton, a professor from uh, Southern Connecticut State University. Thank you, Jonathan. It's good to see you. And Mark Pazniokas, the Capitol Bureau Chief of the Connecticut Mirror. Thank you so much. It's always good to see you, man. And, and congratulations, Grandpa. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. It's, it's the one thing I think I can cling to. For 2020, I don't, you know, I almost took issue when you talked about writing off all of 2020. Thanks to Kyle Constable for putting this all together. To Jess Friedman, who produces the Steady Habits podcast with me. By the way, if you're not subscribed to the Steady Habits podcast, it's really easy. You can do it wherever you get your podcast. Just hit the subscribe button. That way it comes into your feed. You don't have to worry about downloading it each and every time. You can also go to steadyhabits.org if you want to find the new episodes. I want to thank Beth Hamilton and her amazing Connecticut Mirror Newsroom, and also thank our publisher, Bruce Potterman. Our Steady Beats are by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson, and they're at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. Thanks so much for joining us here on this special Steady Habits Live. <laughs>